Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. It's May 2012 and today's guest is in his 80th year, a good 40 of which have been spent in full-time angling journalism around his native patch of the West Country. A man who took up angling photojournalism way back in 1970 and who to date has had in excess of 1,200 feature articles published in eight different languages, plus 50,000 pictures and around 8,000 newspaper columns and is still producing reports at the rate of three per week. Add to this over 500 TV items for BBC South West, 31 years of consultancy work including KP Morrit which became intrepid, Gladding International UK and USA and Shakespeare at the same time as having an equally glittering angling career with many big fish and national championship wins, all of which can only mean one person, Mr Angling Journalism himself, Mike Millman. But I know it's more of a family business than that. You, obviously, are the undoubted frontman, but behind the scenes your wife Valerie is also heavily involved, even today. Valerie and I have always worked together. She works in the business, we formed ourselves into a company. She's always worked in it, and in fact she does all the paperwork, all the, all the computer work, all this kind of stuff. She's good at that. But then again, of course, she's only 75. She has no wish to give up either. Well, she hasn't said she wants to. So I reckon that we're good for a while yet. Um, my son, Quentin, he runs the biggest tackle repair business in Europe, QM Service. And he has agencies with most of the big companies. It grew from, well, it grew from nothing, really. He had cancer when he was 25 and um, had to leave the job that he was doing, which actually, and I come back to this business about precision engineering, which was my father. He was actually making ball bearings for Formula One racing cars. We're now talking extreme precision, but that's what, he did. He left that because he couldn't cut it. And he started to um, repair reels as a sideline. And then it moved on from there and then he had three or four years at the back of Clive's Tackle in Plymouth and then set up his own business which is now quite considerable. Very, very large indeed. So the pictures later on of that. So at this time I'm now fishing seriously myself again and um, enjoying it immensely. Some of the early days were quite amazing what could be done. I really started the boat fishing in 1950 and then after the Air Force came back to it again in an ex-admiralty cutter called Carol Ann run by a chap called Mark Blades who became a very good friend of over 50 years until he died um, two years ago. The cutter used to be part of the ship of HMS Wigtown Bay, which is up in, you know, near Scotland, or in Scotland, is it Wigtown Bay? On the Solway Firth. But anyway, did this boat up, this 25-foot cutter. And um, we had some absolutely wonderful days fishing from that. But of course, it was pre-electronic days. There were no electronics, so to speak. The commercial boats had Decker Mark 12s. So we occasionally made up a Dan with sash weights from windows. There's plenty of those in the scrapyards at that time. And we'd make up a Dan and we'd give a commercial guy 
few quid to drop it on a wreck. Nine times out of ten, it was dropped nowhere near the wreck, but you could only hope. Nevertheless, the fishing at places like the Eddystone and the Hands Deeps, West Ruts, East Ruts, the Pinnacle, it was really top-notch. But one, uh, one day, which is worth, the story is worth recounting, we're just three miles off the coast at Stoke Point. The White House was on the cliff, and you had to line up directly in line with the White House with a, a row of trees that was on a, a headland to the east and to a point in the west. And if you got them all together, then you were in the right place, which was allegedly the wreck of a submarine. Whether it was or not, I really don't know. But anyway, good morning. All catching big pollock, 12, 14 pounders. Suddenly, Mark, the bloke who owned the boat, and who basically taught me the rudiments of, of pollock fishing with a centre pin reel, which is uh, hilarious at times. Uh, you get rack knuckles and you get cut palms and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he's hooked into, obviously, a fairly good fish. He's winding it up, you see, and it suddenly all went light. It was no hours off. Suddenly, oh, he's reeled the rest of it up, and it's half a ling. Suddenly, going round the boat like crazy, is this huge mako. It's going round and round, clearly looking for the rest of the fish. Well, that's how we perceived it to be. It might not have had that much intelligence, but it, it had been deprived. It came so damn close, like a fool, I stuck a gaff in it. Always carried a gaff myself by the side of me. Gaffed it. Mark yelled to us, get gaffs. I mean, why would we need to do this? I really don't know. But anyway, the excitement of the moment. They all stuck gaffs in. And we are going up and down as this thing's thrashing about. Terrible. Eventually, you can hear the boat being ground. And so Mark said, oh, well, that's enough, lads. Let it, let it go. Let it go, you know. It wasn't a question of letting it go. It was a question of being deprived of all the gaffs because the strength of this thing was so great that we just couldn't hold on anymore. And it swam off with periscopes sticking out of it. I often felt sorry about it afterwards, but there you go. It was the excitement of the moment. At the time, we thought it was about £250, I suppose. But when I saw Joyce Yallop's 500, I knew then that it was considerably bigger. The last Mako, according to my research records, was taken by David Turner from Robin Vinicom's boat Huntress out of Falmouth in 1971. Yes, mid to end 70s. In total, I believe that 34 were boated from Devon and Cornish waters up to that time. Why then do you think they were so concentrated into that one specific period? And why, despite rising sea temperatures, have there been none in the 35 years or so since that time? That's something of a mystery. It must have been something to do with the climatic conditions of the time. Maybe the water was of a different temperature, which, which suited them. I mean, the mako has never been what might be termed a prolific species here, by any means. The occasional one, most of them were quite big, of course, that did appear. There weren't many juveniles. Now, Frank, of course, had his share of them. 
no question of that, at Falmouth. But Lug got its share as well. Not so many, but of course Joyce Yallop's famous fish of 500 pounds. Mind you, she only took the record by a pound, you know. The previous record was 4.99 on Frank's boat, and she got it at 500. I think it was 500, because I've got a picture of the scales that shows 500. So I'm prepared to believe a fairer outcome would have been a tie, without putting too many finer points on it. A tie would have been fairer. But of course, Joyce being a woman, I suppose, and the publicity being better. I mean, Joyce was a wonderful character. I knew her very well. She put up a hell of a fight, you know, two hours, 37 minutes to get that fish. That was Alan Dingle, of course, on Lady Betty. And the story goes that after about two hours, another skipper came by, I don't know who that was, and shouted, let the thing go. I wouldn't put my wife through that. And Alan is supposed to have said, well, she isn't your wife, so shut your bloody mouth and get out of the way. And, of course, Joyce got her fish. Remember the day on the key at Lou, 500 pounds. Frank wasn't very happy about it, though. I'm sure he wasn't. No, no. That opens another door, really, about controversies of, of, of records and, and records changing hands. And there are one or two instances that I know of that I actually took issue with the British Record Rod Court Fish Committee over. Having some deep interest in, in records and the, and the historical background to them and all that kind of thing, and I felt that the wrong decisions were made. On one occasion, Bob Page, who ruled the thing like a rod of iron, told me to shut up because it's got nothing to do with you. I disagreed, of course. I said, it, well, it has everything to do, not necessarily with me, but it has everything to do with everybody. I never believed in this secretive business. And, of course, controversial, but the NFSA, I thought, operated quite often as a secret society. And, of course, the Record Fish Committee was very much involved with it. You know all about that. You don't need me to go into that. But anyway, yes, I'm sure that Frank was miffed, shall we say, that, that his record had, had gone for the sake of a pound. A tie would have been better. It has been suggested, and I must admit I've heard this from a number of sources now, that there was a very recent meal which, for want of a better way of putting it, was persuaded to remain inside the shark to keep its weight up. Well, that's a possibility. It is a possibility. I know not. But anyway, Joyce got the record. Joyce became famous. I mean, she was a diamond woman. There's no question of that. Ran a market stall in uh, Norwich. I believe... It's either her son or her daughter still does. But there is still a connection. But I remember when she came to her last conga club thing and she said to me, Mike, we're not going to meet again. I said, oh, for God's sake, Joyce, still be late. We're not going to, she said, no. And she died three weeks later. Anyway, other ladies of that era, of course, who did very well, included Hetty Ethorn. I don't know whether you remember Hetty. Well, Hetty... Um, Diminutive. She was, uh, was less than five feet in height, but a very, very good angler. They had their own boat called the Little One, and they ran a, a chandlery business in Lou. And, of course, she was credited with the first Mako. They thought it was a poor beagle at the time, but then 
later on it was discovered that it was not at Port Beagle, it was a Mako and, and it was all this kind of stuff. All to do with the cusps of the teeth and all this. But anyway, she, um, she had a lot of good fish, um, no question of that. And um, of course, in 1962, uh, she became the first president of the, of the British Conquer Club. It was an era of makos every now and again, but mostly of blue shark, which you would appreciate. The Shark Angling Club, of course, of Great Britain, formed in 1953, mostly um, out of a desire to give some work to local skippers. The pilchard industry had uh, collapsed, so they had to do something, and it was conceived that as a way out of the, the no-work problem. But of course it went silly because they were catching five, six thousand blues a year. Stupid. But of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And I was as much to blame as I'm sure you were with all of this. None of us are without involvement. But that nightly tumbril running to the scales at Lou particularly loaded up with dead sharks, all of which had no future. They were either used as crab pot bait or simply dumped in the local tip. I mean, rather foolish, really. But of course it couldn't last, but five, six thousand a year. There were four particular years when, I think in those four years, over 30,000 were caught and killed. The stock really can't stand that. That should have been picked up earlier, actually, as the average size year-on-year year went into decline. Oh, yes. Well, of course, the, the average weight, you know, was never much more than about 50 to 60 pounds. They were basically juveniles, in truth. The occasional larger one, 75 pounds was the required weight for the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain membership. It had to be brought in at that time, had to be correctly weighed, had to be witnessed... That, that's gone, of course. But I, I took over the chairmanship of the club in 1990, mostly because they were having a, a lean time of it. And I was involved with quite a lot of other things at that time, and they asked me if I would join the committee. Well, I did. I joined the committee, and a fortnight later I became vice chairman, and, and I think about eight months after that I became chairman. But it was a... Its force had gone, mostly, of course, because the conservationists were not at all happy with what was going on, and the slaughter was quite bad. I was back at Lou actually last year to interview Martin Bray and was saddened to see the way the shark scene has declined and was currently being portrayed by a group of people with absolutely no connection to its rich history at all. It, it is but a shadow. Oh, yeah. Well, as Martin would tell you, I mean, it is. Well, anyway, I, I, I stayed there for about four or five years, I suppose, and then time was up and went on to other things. But they could not stand the pressure. The record, of course, which is Sutcliffe's, which was 218, which is now one of the longest, 1959, that could have been beaten, actually, at Mevagizzi some... Hmm, 10, 12 years ago, no more than that probably now, and that was on Bernard Hunkin's boat, Eileen. Well, he gave me a call one day, he said, yeah, Mike, we've got a shark, I think it's going to make the record. So, all right, I'll come down. 
stroked out of my because and it weighed. Actually, when I got there, they were already weighing it, tied up by the tail. So everything that was inside of this thing, including it all fell out. It weighed a pound less than Sutcliffe's 218. It would have been 225, 230, something like that. But anyway, they didn't get it because there was that. Now, of course, with all the fish being put back, that is one of the records that is unlikely ever to be exceeded. You say that, but last year at Milford Haven in South Wales, a blue of £222 was brought aboard Andrew Allsop's boat, Whitewater, though I'm not sure how that will square up with the record claims procedure due to its not having been weighed on firm ground. Andrew, quite rightly in my mind, put the fish back instead. Oh, there have been bigger blues. Mm. Yeah, we had one at the gunnel of a boat in Plymouth that was believed to weigh at least 250, maybe 300. And it was one of the chaps who um, was the managing director of um, one of the tackle companies who had it. I, I can't remember now which one. But anyway, it was let go. But it would have definitely have, um, would have got the record. We're mentioning Bernard and Les Hunkin. They're memorable days as well. I fished with them very, very frequently. Eileen, of course, was his wife, you see. Hence, Eileen. Eileen used to cook us breakfast. We used to get down there at about, I don't know, half past seven in the morning, I suppose, from Plymouth. And she'd have breakfast ready. By God. I mean, we're talking breakfast. You know, I mean, it was um, unbelievable. So we were well provisioned to go to sea. Then we'd go off and get all kinds of catches. Quite remarkable, they were. Whilst we're at Mevagizzi, could we talk about Colin Williams? But only in the era of Cecily Laura. That was his first boat. Now at that time, Colin, the man I dubbed the man with the magic eyes, rubbish really, but for the sake of a title, I dubbed him that. He had an uncanny knack of being able to find a number of wrecks without any electronics at all, purely by an old pair of binoculars and shore markers. And he could read the sea like there was nobody else. Brilliant. And that wreck that we went to quite often, you know, wartime casualty, that produced unbelievable numbers of fish. I remember on one trip I had four congers over 50 in the same day. It was not half bad going. All solitaire, by the way. No help. I always used to solitaire all my fish, which eventually won me the solitaire cup, which is another story. Colin, unfortunately, changed as his fame grew. The fame that basically I provided for him. There's no question of that, and all the features and all that sort of thing. The wreck of giants and all this kind of stuff. All features. And um, he then went on to um, another book called The Karen Jane, which is a very much larger vessel. We fished a few times with him, but he pushed weather too much, in our opinion. Our opinion rather than his. I mean, there were never any incidents or accidents that I know of. But I remember we went out of Penzance once with him and, uh, well, it was horrendous. And I'm a fairly good 
sea person. I, I, I don't have problems. I can take big weather. But even that, I thought, now, th- th- this is silly because there's no comfort in it, is there? So we um, no longer chartered him. But he was a very good skipper. Wasn't he a school teacher? Yes, he was. Uh, he was school teaching when he had the Cecily Laura. But he'd retired from that when he became a much uh, bigger enterprise and bought the Karen Jane. That was um, the turning point, really. He also stuck, not that it ever bothered me, but he stuck rigidly to the two fish rule, of which was a controversial issue, to say the least. It never bothered me one scrap, because I never took any fish home anyway, because all I was interested in was catching fish, big fish. Now, skippers who didn't have the two fish rule obviously didn't go to the places that, uh, that were likely to produce a lot of fish. They saved those for people who weren't going to take them home. Commercialization, really. But um, he was very much into that. And very, very keen on it. I remember a little story about that. I was up in the Orkney Islands fishing. We were right off the old man of Hoy drifting by. I remember that distinctly. And the guy sitting next, fishing next to me said, Here, Mike, how's that guy Williams doing down at Mevagus? He said, Oh, he's still there. He's still going. I said, Here, I said, Here. We upset him, you know. So oh, that's not difficult. How was that then? He said, Well, a friend of mine caught this turbot. Nice fish, about 20-odd pounds. And he's walking off with it, and Colin shouts out, Hey, hang on a minute, where are you going with that? So what do you mean, where am I going with that? So well, you're only allowed two round fish. So well, what shape do you call it? So we left him crying on a key. Now, is it an apocryphal story? But I think there's a lot of truth in it. But uh, anyway, these sort of things gelled up. And the two fish rule was controversial. There was no question of it. They said that it was necessary because the trips were so cheap to go fishing that they had to have some sort of subsidy to justify that. So the fish on the quay kept the prices of the angling low. Whether that was true or not is um, up for debate, isn't it? But if you didn't go with it, you wouldn't get much more to take home anyway, because they would see to that. Oh, absolutely. Very much so. Oh, no. The power of it was very much in their hands. Another big fish from that era, which was a big fish. That was in a story at a place called Penlee Point, which is just at the, um, the entrance on the, on the western flank to Plymouth Sound. And we used to go there regularly for evening conger trips. So we'd go down off rain from the tide race, get the mackerel, feather the mackerel up, plenty of mackerel, no trouble. Then go back, and as the light began to go, we would settle down for conger, you see. Well, this particular night, we were all settled up, the primus was going, the, the sausages were cooking very nicely, the aromas is filling the dead air, really very nice. And we're catching congers one after the other. Not big fish. 15, 20 pounds, something like that. When suddenly, the guy who was in the front of the boat, a chap called Gordon Arnold, he's hooked into a fish, and at the same time, 
because he was in the front of the boat, he was the one that got the first hot dog. Mark's doing the cooking, you see. Got his hot dogs. He's got a hot dog in one hand, rod in the other, and trying to combine, bringing up this fish. At the same time, making sure that the dog didn't go anywhere. Suddenly, it was a night of incredible phosphorus in the water. Everything was lit. It, it, amazing sights, this is. Anyway, suddenly, there's this commotion at the surface. And I suddenly realised, and I was at the other end of the boat, so 25-foot cutter, as I said, there's a cuddy in the front, which took up about six, seven feet, I suppose, and the bow, and the rest of it was gunnel. I suddenly realised that I am looking at a giant conger, and I mean giant. The other end where Arnold is, he's got the head and another conger in the mouth, across the mouth of this immense fish. There's this sound of crushing. It thrashed the surface and was gone. The bit we had left weighed 19 pounds. The rest of it had disappeared down this eel's mouth. That eel did not weigh less than 150 pounds. And that is against seeing literally dozens of hundreds in the years that lay ahead. And that was no more than 100 yards off the shore, under the Greystone Boy. It was an amazing fish. Back in the early days of wrecking, when I used to fish from Plymouth with the likes of Geordie and Dave Elworthy, to have any real chance of any congers, never mind big congers, you first had to clear the wreck out of its ling, and we're talking here of big ling, to ensure that the baits would be left for long enough for the more cautious conger to be in with the shout. Obviously, it isn't like that with the ling these days, and conger population numbers are also well down. But am I right in thinking that in some ways this actually enhances the possibility of taking a really big eel like the one that you've just mentioned? Oh, better than ever. And that is the reason why so many more really large conger are caught, or have been caught. There aren't quite so many now as there once were, even in those terms. Should we talk a little bit about skippers at this point? Well, before we get there, should I tell you that going back and you, you made a point that you had to clean out a great many ling before you could get to the conger. Well, we'd done our best to do that. But on that wreck, I recall, and it did get some fair publicity at the time. I mean, a ridiculous way of fishing. It was a three-hook paternoster of uh, underpound mono, ten o'hooks, wit with red wool, and carrying half a side of mackerel. So I let that lot down, being fished from a Milbro Commander rod, which I've still got, with the crack butt. Felt one go on, then another one went on, then another one on. Then I spent the next ten minutes trying to get this lot up. Felt the rod butt go, because the Commander had a glass top into the butt. Anyway, I felt it go. But just before we got the service, I'm, I'm using basically half a rod. Now, it's still attached, but only just. And there they were. 
three length. Together they weighed 105 pounds, six ounces. Mother Gizzy, 1970. Now, why would you ever want? But it was the time. And you also had to clear the, the ling out. Because you really, as you just mentioned, you, you didn't get a touch from a conger. The ling were too fast. But once the ling had gone, we then began to, um, to get into the to the big conger. So you wanted to talk, I think, about skippers. Right, you try me. What I don't know, we don't know. Why don't we start then with the man who we'll be meeting up with later on today, JJ McVicker. Yeah, JJ. A character. Well, he's going to tell you everything he wants to tell you. So there's not a lot of point in me telling you. Otherwise, we're going to cross the, the territory. But I will say that he was, it was wonderful to go out. And he had this record-breaking era when a boat called the June Lepet, he didn't own it. Um, he merely skippered it. But he knew the, the wrecks, of course, being a commercial fisherman. He'll tell you how he got into this. I won't. But I remember the day that the Pollock record was broken, £25. And that was one of the controversies that I will come to about weights. Fish weighed 25 pounds. It was a hell of a day. I had one of 22.10. And Roger Hosking, the man who caught the record fish, was fishing next to me when he had the 25. He also had a coal fish on that day. It was about um, 26 pounds, something like that. Not far short of the record. At that point, held by John Trust of our unity. All the skippers, you know, would occasionally fish a little bit for themselves. You know, they, they couldn't resist the, the chance of doing something for themselves. But anyway, it was an era, a, a spectacular era. And as I was covering it in full, it was almost a daily occurrence. Either I was there or was called in, as the features will show, and there are all, a great many of them with Jay. But... Of course, it got to the point where he was followed everywhere. And, oh dear, that was a, a right caper. So he had to lose him or go somewhere where we, they thought he was, whereas in reality, one at all. It was all a subterfuge, you know what I mean? But anyway, he had a talent for finding big fish. And, of course, he broke the, um, the anglerfish record himself, fish 74 pounds, and on that day, and I remember that, on the boat was Bernard Cribbins, um, Rita Barrett, and um, yeah, that was the, the fish of the day, the anglerfish. And didn't he also take the coalfish record? Twice in consecutive days, yeah. So it was an era of some considerable uh, excitement. And he liked to fish on the drift? Always on the drift. I never knew him to anchor up. It was always drifted, the wrecks. And that was why he never really had any great success with conger, because he never really wanted any success with conger. It was mostly pollock and coalfish, but they were the species of the era, really. I would rate JJ as one of the finest skippers, most certainly in the right place at the right time, as I was, to be able to report on all these fish, the record fish. And that's... A big thing, isn't it? To be in the right place at the right time. And he certainly was. But he'll tell you 
or what he wants to tell you later on. So move on to one or two of the others. Let's talk about John Trust and early passport. Again, in the right place at the right time. They were um, early on in it. Their start-up almost coincided with the advent of the British Conger Club. I mean, they were commercial fishermen, through and through, dyed in the wool. 20 points a day men, without any problem. Marvellous. I started fishing with them in 1963, in the very early days, when I became a member of the Conger Club. How long ago that seems now. Lime Bay has 400 known wrecks. Probably a lot more. I mean, it was an absolute killing ground in both the First World War and the Second World War from submarine warfare. But they were clever. They never went to the same wreck twice. I dubbed John and Ernie the best. Fantastic catches we had. But again, bear in mind, the wrecks were full of fish in Lime Bay. I lost the first 100-pound conger without a shadow of doubt from our unity. Lime Bay wreck, 1967 it was. Fishing away, congers galore coming up and coming up. And then I hooked this one, got him up. They knew it was a big fish because they had it on for 40 minutes. And he went down 11 times. That's a big fish. They cleared the decks, said, all right, everybody up, clear out the way. And I remember was John was standing there and Ernie was standing there, two calves. All right, bring him in. There was this beast just undulating in the tide on a very flat, calm day. It was massive. Bring him in and bring him in easy. Yeah, I will, I will. And a foot from the gaffs, the hook fell out of his mouth because it had worn a big hole. He'd been hooked in the jaw and because he'd been on so long and had gone down so many times, he'd worn the hole. I can hear that gaff Ernie threw, I can hear it bang against the cuddy now. He went in, slammed the door, and sat down in the, and said nothing. John was slightly less uh, concerned, I suppose. He was concerned, but he went and said nothing. <laughs> said, oh, I don't want to fish anymore. That's stupid. The disappointment level is so great. Door opens. Ernie comes out. You sitting there for? Get on that rod. An hour later, I won the championship. I believe that socially they didn't mix because they didn't get on. They got on extremely well on the boat, but they did not mix socially at all. Ernie was a womanizer. Everybody knew that. It's not doing him a disservice. And I tell you a little story about that. One day, the ten of us were there, seven in the morning, ready to set off. There we are, standing around on the boat. Where the hell are they? Somebody says, you better go up and knock them up, find out where we are. At that moment, cabin door opened down in the forecastle, you see, and out comes Ernie. So what are you doing here? So we're supposed to be going fishing, Ern. Where's John? He got the day off. I'm taking you. Says here, love. Push off. 
and of course this marked <laughs> old in most of her clothes. I mean, all this sort of stuff. He died appropriately, you know, and he became, he became the skipper of luxury yachts, you know, down in the Mediterranean, and died in Barbados uh, of a heart attack, swimming. But they were, it was magical. I loved every minute of it. But you're right, they didn't mix socially at all. Except they would go to the pub after the trips and have a few pints. But they never mixed socially at all. It was a working partnership. And they were very good at what they did. And I've never seen anybody do it so well as they did. The way they could power around the anchor and end up in exactly the right place where that boat had to be was quite remarkable. And on the scene long before those that would follow, like JJ and the rest. Oh yes, they were the forerunners. Actually, they weren't, by a matter of a few months really, Dudley Stone, who you may not recall. Dudley Stone was another commercial skipper. And um, he was pretty good. Can I throw another name at you now? We spoke earlier about JJ not liking to anchor. Next name on the list is a chap I fish with a lot because he did actually anchor. Dave Elworthy. Yeah, Dave Elworthy. Always anchored. Yes. Dave Elworthy was talented. His crewman was a chap called Kenny Bridges. The pair of them worked very, very well together. Yeah. I've fished with Dave quite a lot and um, had some very, very good conger from him. I actually won um, the heat of the uh, Congress Championship in 1970 from Dave Elworthy's uh, Anjonica. I'll never forget that day. It was unbelievably rough. And he said, I can't get anywhere further than Penlee and it's going to be pretty horrible there. I said, OK, well, let's do it. So we went there. And I caught the only conger that was caught from the boats that were competing and it weighed 35 pounds, not a big fish. But on this day, with the rise and fall of at least 20 feet, it was no joke. And I can tell you another story about Anjonica. I forget when this, it might have been mid-60s, something like that. We had the National Festival at Plymouth, the NFSA festival which combined the um, British Boat Championship and so on and so forth. Another of these appalling days. Really, really terrible. But I had drawn Angelica. Again, Penley, because of the shelter that it afforded to a degree. One much, but a little. It was obviously hopeless to really expect to catch anything of any note. But it was a bag-filling contest. Not that I particularly like bag-filling contests, but nevertheless. If that was what was required, that's what you did. So I said to Dave, got a rope? And he said, yeah, what the hell you want a rope for? So I want you to tie me to the side of the cabin, which he did. Otherwise, I'd have fallen over. I caught 100 and 67 pounds of mackerel. Now, everybody laughed about this after. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but a lot tried it to match it and packed it in along the way. I had £167 and of course I won the whole thing all ends up. The main part of the story was that at the presentation of the awards done by Derek Hales, do you remember Derek Hales? He was chairman of the NFSA for quite some years. Suddenly on the stage appears a choir of about ten of my competitors who had devised a song called All Kinds of Mackerel Remind Me of You. I've got it still. Are they ten verses of this? They sang it through and I got to sit there and listen to it. But I looked upon it as a kind of a I'd won, and that was what it was all about. So anyway, that was, yeah, that was Anjonica. But I mean, we had many, many good fish from there, but the, as a team, Elworthy and Bridges were really very, very good at it. What about one of J.A.'s apprentices, Steve Barrett? Yeah, Steve Barrett. His mother, of course, was Rita Barrett, who became famous for her line class records. After, of course setting the British record for the whiting for the fish of six pounds two ounces on the whiting grounds off Rame Head. And um, Steve was always a keen angler, of course, and he took up charter fishing, had a partner who provided a concrete boat. First of all, he had an ormal boat, Boa Pescador, it was called. It was a French trawler. And that moved on to Boa Pescador 2, which was made of concrete. Came out of a concrete mould and so on and so forth. And I used to fish with him frequently. And in fact, I had my best pollock from there, 23.4, which was the, um, the best pollock of 19... I don't know, 74 or 5 or something like that, under the NFSA specimen fish thing. But I think you'll see from the boards there, that, which I've put together for the Conger Club's 50th, anniversary, ten of them all together, which um, I think covers the history of the club pretty much. You're coming back to our unity again. You will see there just how dominant they were. There's their board, look, the, the Brixham's, our unity, the Brixham Clubs, has this board down on display there. The British Conger Club Special Award to John Trust and Passmore. And that's the years that they were top boat, look. They were just so dominant. Eleven years, nobody beat them. Quite incredible. And they had the cod record, of course, of, which was a, a casual catch. And the guy who caught it, in fact, had not fished before, and he never fished again, he didn't want to go, but they had um, persuaded him to go. Fred Davis, the snooker player, he was a friend of him. And he, he persuaded him. He said, oh, you've got to come with you, you're drinking all day, you come with us. And that's what happened. Sod's law. He caught the record card. But the Conger Club honoured them. They made them life members. I remember that night uh, particularly. It was in 1974. And it was during the AGM and dinner at the Torbay Hotel in Torquay. They deserved it. There's no sure. question of that. Because they were the first people, they were back into records again, to break H.A. Kelly's £84 record. 
set uh, in 1933. They did it, all right, only by a pound, but it opened the floodgates, and then the big fish started to come. Prior to that, of course, you had this Ling problem, and it was a, a massive problem. A wreck, on average, could hold as much as 15,000 pounds of Ling that you had to clear out first. That took two or three days. <laughs> two or three days! But this is the um, the boards that's uh, for that. There's the first fish ever up there, registered by the British Conger Club, formed by um, Mike Connell, of course, in 1962, with whom I stayed friends until his death about three years ago. But it was a great era, no question about it. Can we now move on to Ray Parsons? Yeah, Ray Parsons broke the Ling record, became a front cover of Sea Angler, of which I had 81. Yeah, Ray, an angler first, and a charter skipper second, knew a lot of wrecks, gave a very good trip, always. Why don't we liven it up a little bit now then with some controversy from a man who, whilst he could give a very good trip, could at the same time also give everyone on board a very hard time. Geordie Dixon. <laughs> yes. A taskmaster. That's one way of putting it. Well, put it any way you like. Ernie Passmore, mind you know, had a dummy book entitled How to Go Sea Fishing. And if you did something wrong or did not measure up to the standard that they required, he would bring the book around and said, I think you better read this. There wasn't anything in the book. It was just a dummy book, but amusing. OK, so let's talk about Geordie. Pushed weather, like hell, to the point where Valerie banned me. My wife banned me from going on the boat because it was a bit dodgy. And, of course, he had a couple sink under him. They went down. Helicopters, people being lifted off. Fortunately, I wasn't there. But I recall one time I went on one of the other of the Guernsey trips, and of course he was doing Guernsey trips very, very frequently indeed, in all kinds of weather. Well, we got over there all right, and it had been pretty rough going over. But anyway, to come back the next day, it was a force eight, and it was getting towards nine, and I said to him, Geordie, I ain't coming home with you. For me, it's called a plane. I'm going to fly back to Plymouth. Oh, well, all right, all right, it's been lovely, you know, it won't be. I was there when the boat got back. Oh, half a dozen of the other guys also decided that this was not for them. It wasn't a question of being lily-livered or... But common sense has to play a role, doesn't it? So he came back with about four guys with all the top hamper of the boat gone, all the electronics above the cabin, all swept away by these big seas. Literally, it was bare. It had swept the whole lot away. The radar had gone, the antennas had gone, the life rafts had gone. It had been swept off. So, yeah, but a very fine navigator... Ex-army man, artilleryman, yes. Artilleryman, artilleryman one, artilleryman two, and so on and so forth. Came from up in the north of England. 
Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Came down here. Hartlepool, to be precise. But, yeah, I mean, it was a question that he tended later on to get rough crowds. Not my scene. I think, in all honesty, that he got the rougher crowds because more run-of-the-mill folk were perhaps put off a little bit by his sergeant-major attitude. Well, put it this way. I'll tell you one little story. On one of the trips, it was a pretty awful, lousy weather. I am in, because of the privileged position, for want of a better term, and I sign up on the door. No entry, nobody is, nobody has loud in there, you see. Okay, fine, but I'm in there. Terrible. They're out there taking a battering. The waves are coming over, the water's coming over, and so I said to him, well, it's pretty bad. Look at them. It's just lovely in here. I remember fishing a 24-hour trip with him once. Somebody on board had cooked some food and neglected to wash the pan. So Geordie being Geordie, he put the anchor down in Plymouth Sound and said he wasn't going to move until it was clean. Surely an easier way would have been simply to ask someone to wash it. But Geordie was his own man and, and gave very little to anybody else. If he wanted to do something, he did it. And if he didn't want to do something, he, uh, he did that as well. No, no, he was hard. And, and I imagine, I mean, he's still going to a degree. But, yeah, he pushed weather to the ultimate degree rather than cancel a trip. And you never knew when he was coming back. That was another point. You know, you might go on what, what was termed a day trip, but it might be the middle of the next night or the next day uh, that you actually got back. But again, not a lot of consideration for anybody else. You know, say, oh, well, you know, the tide's nice for catching a lot of fish. Well, hang on. Oh, well, hang on a bit. You know, then, of course, hanging on meant hanging on for the next lot of tides, which is another six hours. And then another four or five hours fishing. And you're five hours out. So, yes. Okay, who else should we talk about? Let's nip over to Dartmouth now and look at Lloyd Saunders. Another taskmaster. Didn't treat people lightly because he wanted it done properly and was not hesitant to say. I've only ever placed fish with him out over the skerries. Good skipper. Retired now, of course. Well, you can call it retired. He's still got a bought a new boat. I thought he was going to buy a rowing boat instead of that. He's gone and bought a 35-footer. But he's not chartering anymore. Yeah, a very dedicated angler in his own right. Dedicated. Paint and Sea Anglers Club, you see, which is just a hundred yards away. But uh, Lloyd, of course, um, uh, broke the conga record. 112.8. And had plenty of success, really. Plenty of success. Next... Can we now start to move in the other direction and cross the border into Cornwall? I used to fish a lot out of Lou with Bonzo Butters, so can we perhaps, say, pick up on a few of the characters there? Yes, I didn't know all of them that well, but I fished with a number of them. Yeah. Dedicated to sharking, of course. Not much else. Occasionally bottom fishing, but nearly all the big tides, of course, were all sharking. That was the nature of the port. It was, but once I got into doing regular visits, I did more bottom fishing trips than sharking, taking lots of good fish, including in those days plenty of red bream, and on a couple of occasions even the odd comber. Well, yes, they did refishing, but sharking was the, was the primary interest, really. 
Alan Dingle and, of course, his father was before him, Abbey Dingle. I mean, they all came up from the commercial fishery. They all offered a good day out. No question of that. And then, of course, there was the lugger as well, our daddy. I once had that all to myself. For a whole week, I shot the pictures for... Do you remember the People Angling Contest? The 12 finalists got taken for a week's holiday summer. I went to um, a busman's holiday in Lou. <laughs> Imagine living in Plymouth and staying in Lou for a week at the Hannaford Point Hotel. Then another year we went to the Isle of Man. And another year we went to Jersey. And another year we went to somewhere else. All shooting the pictures. But the year at uh, Lou, they hired our daddy as the press boat. But it was only me that turned on that, the damn thing. Five days. Not fishing. Just roaming around waiting for them so I could film what they were doing. Got a bit boring. But I, no, I, I won't say I fish seriously. Let's say I put a line over the side. I mean, because you weren't anywhere. You were only out on the drift grounds. You weren't going sharking. I also remember taking lots of good whiting down on the bottom on long blue shark drifts. There were even reports of some big haddock, too. Ah, yeah. Hape as well, at one time. Species that are no longer found. They've virtually gone. Hake used to turn up, not infrequently, but they were nearly all big fish. Haddock used to be down on the whiting grounds. They disappeared. The hake certainly disappeared. I would say that there was a general decline of pretty much all the species for a period. Of course, you had the problem of the, of the monofilament netting, which is a, a huge problem. The species most affected by that from the, uh, the West point of view, really, was the bass, particularly at the Eddystone Reef, where there were formerly thousands. And then, of course, the Spaniard got going on it, and he was uh, talented, took skill to work the rocks the way he did, but he caught tens of thousands of pounds of big bass. The other guy, of course, was Spencer Vibard. He was a police inspector with whom I crossed swords on a number of occasions because he wanted it all his own way. Now, he was crying out about the Spaniard and the other netters, whilst all the time he is rotten lining for bass, all of which are destined for the market. And my argument was, you can't castigate them doing that if you're doing this. He got a bit childish, really. He had won the Plymouth Sea Anglers Club's bass trophy for about 20 years, unbroken. So then we passed, we got fed up with that, and said, look, Nobody else has a chance. So how about desisting for a while and let, let's get some normalcy into this. Resign from the club. Which I could never see it, you know, for the sake of a one fish and a bit of tin. But felt very strongly about it. But you can't have it always. And his commercialing was no different to the, the, the rod and line commercialing 
was no different to the net commercially, in my view. Well, and I said so. It ended up in one article in the paper, there's his picture up there and my picture up there, and this great confrontation between... Them. Of course, the paper made the most of it. I mean, as they would, wouldn't they? Something about... Um, he said, I don't care if I am called a... Whatever it was, you know, I mean... Spencer, rest where you are. It's long gone. Let's make our final port of call here, Falmouth and the Vinicom brothers. Well, Mako men. Yeah, I've got it there. Mako men. Yeah. I fished with Robin once, out of Falmouth, sharking. So, I get down there, had the book trip, see. I was staying in Falmouth. So he said, here, Mike, do you mind a long one? I said, well, how long? Oh, I don't know. He said, 30 hours, something like that. I said, okay, I'll... So I rang home and said, I won't be back. Um, I was working at this time, by the way, but I had a, a job that allowed plenty of uh, free time, shall we say. So off we sailed and went right down beyond the bishop. Went to the wolf rock first and did that. And then we went down past the sillies and all that, you know, looking for the ultra big blue. We didn't get it, but I got one of 105, which is quite big. But we were near the wolf when this, this Mako appeared. God, he was big and huge. He said, he's a thousand pound, but we won't get him. He'll have nothing to do with us. And apparently, a Mako on the surface is a very different animal to one taken below. Now, I don't know why that is, but he prophesied that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have any interest in him. And we never did. But he was a massive fish. Came by and sailed along. Oh, they were good. They were good. Of course, Frank had a, a very big conger, you know, um, lining. Getting up around the 170 mark. Something like that, oh yeah. On a long line. Frank once showed me a photo of a commercially caught whiting he'd taken, pushing up around double figures. Nine pound. The occasional one, of course, is very, very big. I had one in my freezer for years that weighed eight given to me by a skipper working out of um, Port Lowe in Cornwall. And he said, me, do you want it, you know, and photograph it and so on and so forth, because it was an exceptional fish. Mm. Yeah, it was in the bottom of the freezer for a, for a very, very long time until we eventually had a chuck out and chucked one or two other interesting fish that were in there as well with them. But yeah, they were the best in Cornwall, really. Yeah, I was chatting about Makos to Frank last year, I think it was, and amazingly, he was still commercially handlining mackerel at the age of 86. Oh, yeah. Of course, Robin had the boat thresher for a while. Appropriately enough, yeah. you know. And um, But they were really dedicated to the Mako. And there were more Makos down at that end of the channel than there ever were at this end of the channel. Mm. But nobody really knows why that era should have been semi prolific for them. We certainly aren't getting them now. The last one that I saw was a commercial fish of about 400 pounds landed at Lou. But it had been taken quite a long way out. I tell you a very big thresher we had at Plymouth commercially in a bass net. The scales weighed up to 600 pounds. We had half of it on the floor. Huge. 
mm. absolutely colossal thing, you know. So there's always a bigger fish in the sea than is uh, ever going to come out of it. I don't know whether there's any other skippers that do. Oh, Bill Warner. We should talk about Bill Warner. Conger Supreme. I had no interest much in anything other than Conger. But he produced some incredible catches. And of course, it is the only boat. Well, I should say the only angler, the late Jim Colvert, who had two 100s in the same day. 105, 102.8, and another one of 77. On the same day, died of cancer eight months later. Recounting such a long, varied and very distinguished angling career deserves more than a quick gloss over. So with that in mind, this is probably an appropriate natural breakpoint from which to pick up from with a slightly different tack in a second episode. Let me then say a very sincere thank you, for the moment at least, to Mike Millman for his input so far, and we'll pick up the baton again next week. <laughs> <laughs>